Our gracious Heavenly Father, you teach us that whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of your scriptures we might have hope. Our Father, we pray that we would know that encouragement and hope this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Australians have had a fascination with property, but even the most reckless of us have never made a property investment that made so little sense as Jeremiah's purchase of his cousin's field. And never has the purchase of a property prompted such an exchange as that between Jeremiah and the Lord and conveyed such extraordinary hope. In a world where we have so little cause to hope in ourselves, where human sin seems so intractable and judgment so deserved, where our world is marked by the violence of the proud, the squandering of opportunity by the idle and the foolish, and all hopes end in death. Like the few who heeded Jeremiah's message in Jerusalem, like the readers of Jeremiah's scroll in exile in Babylon, like everyone who has seen time and again the failure of what seems so promising because of human sin, their own and others, who have been frustrated in our own inability to achieve the good we long for, we, you and I, need that hope. Hope not in ourselves but in the God for whom nothing is too difficult. Uh, Things are looking pretty bleak uh, for Jeremiah and the nation of Judah. It's the year 588 BC and Nebuchadnezzar and his forces have been besieging the city of Jerusalem for many months now. With all that such a siege meant, hardship, famine, increased risk of disease in a crowded city, constant fighting and death. And Jeremiah is imprisoned as a traitor in the guard's courtyard where it says he was given a loaf of bread each day until all the bread was gone from the city. He was sharing in the privations of the people and there were still those who wanted him dead. There's not much hope for Jeremiah or the city. In fact, it's pretty hopeless. Jeremiah and we know how this siege is going to end. For Jeremiah has been saying the same thing for almost 40 years now, saying it so constantly that King Zedekiah knows his message and can quote it back to him. Why are you prophesying as you do? This is what the Lord says, look, I'm about to hand this city over to Babylon's king and we'll capture it. That's the end. The city and the temple will be captured, burnt and destroyed. The throne of David will cease to be. Judah will be defeated and only death or enslavement awaits. And it's in this context where people are reaping the dreadful reward for what they've sown for their persistent rebellion against the Lord, they're refusing to listen, that Jeremiah is informed that he will soon have a visitor who will make him a perhaps desperate, perhaps cynical and self-serving request. Jeremiah replied, literally and better, it's Jeremiah said. Jeremiah's not replying to Zedekiah. Zedekiah's question gives the reason for imprisoning Jeremiah and informs the context for Jeremiah's symbolic action in purchasing the field. 
by reminding us that he's been prophesying this certain destruction. But Jeremiah is now relating what happened to him in this context. The word of the Lord came to me. Watch, Hanamel, the son of your uncle Shalom, is coming to you. Buy my field in Anatos for yourself, he'll say, for you own the right of redemption to buy it. Now, the right of redemption uh, uh, was a provision made in the law, Leviticus 25, to keep property within the family because the land given to each family at the time of conquest was their inheritance. Their land was their tangible experience of God's faithfulness. And to lose the land forever was to lose inclusion in the blessings of the covenant. The basis basis of this arrangement was the Lord's ownership of the land. As owner, he regulates what happens with the land. And he'd said the land is not to be permanently sold because it's mine and you're only aliens and temporary residents on my land. You're to allow the redemption of any land. So when a family member had become so poor that they couldn't afford the land, it was to be offered first to other members of their clan to keep it in the family. The family had the right of redemption. And that's what's happening here. Hanamel needs cash. Probably uh, for the ever more expensive food he needs to purchase in the besieged city. So he wants to sell his land to liquidate his unproductive asset. For its land, he can't work at any return from because, well, the Babylonians have occupied it. But that means, of course, no one can work it. It's useless, unmarketable. So he targets Jeremiah, the religious man who would feel an obligation to keep God's law. He comes and says to him, please buy my field. You you own the right of redemption. Buy it for yourself. But, of course, there's no personal advantage to Jeremiah in purchasing this field. He's in prison. There's no guarantee he'll ever get out or survive. No guarantee he'll ever be able to use the land. He has, by the Lord's command, never taken a wife. So this isn't land he can leave to sons and daughters. And Jeremiah knows that the invader who currently occupies the land will actually win and be ruling to well after he dies because he said that they're going to rule for 70 years, 70 years before the Jews return to the land. There's nothing in this purchase for Jeremiah. But he does it because he knows that this was the word of the Lord. And following the Lord's instruction, as you heard, he goes through the whole legal process before witnesses. You know, he measures out the silver. He records the purchase on a scroll. He seals it. And then he makes elaborate provision for the storage of the purchase agreement. I charged Baruch in their sight. This is what the Lord of Armies, the God of Israel, says. Take these scrolls and put them in an earthen storage jar so that they will last a long time. And even papyrus could last a long time in a sealed earthen storage jar because that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls were stored in for about 2,000 years. And the elaborate storage is to emphasise the certainty of the promise God now makes. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields and vineyards will again be brought in this land. You see, the Lord is making this purchase at the very time when Jeremiah's prophecy of destruction and dispossession is about to be fulfilled 
a powerful assertion of his continuing ownership of the land, no matter what human empires come and go, and as owner, uh, an assertion of his determination that the people of Judah, the descendants of Abraham, would again possess it, possess it as his gift to them. But of course it raised questions for Jeremiah. He's puzzled. How does what God says in verse 15 (laughs) relate to the message that Jeremiah's been given to this point, the message of just judgment on a rebellious and unrepentant people? And when will this new purchasing be? Is God promising immediate, miraculous relief? What is God intending to do? But before we look at Jeremiah's prayer and God's answer, let's think about Jeremiah, imprisoned, besieged, going ahead with this extraordinary purpose. That Jeremiah goes ahead with this purchase that makes no sense in material terms for it's all cost without any foreseeable benefit and no apparent sense in the light of what he's been saying, what God has been saying through him for 40 years. That Jeremiah goes ahead with this purchase is the obedience of faith. See, Jeremiah purchases the land because he trusts the Lord, trusts he knows what he's doing and that the Lord can express himself clearly, make known what he wants done. Jeremiah, believing that the Lord's sovereign and good and can speak his will, obeys. He practices the obedience of faith. And this obedience of faith is something believers in the Lord Jesus are also called to in the response to the gospel. Paul in Romans 1.5 says his mission is to bring about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles through the preaching of the gospel. Believers in Jesus are to live doing what God says through his son because he says it and we trust him. And we actually learn clearly what the obedience of faith looks like from Jeremiah. The obedience of faith is expressed where we know God's will clearly from his word, as Jeremiah does here because God has spoken. So the obedience of faith isn't practice where all we have are hunches or feelings about what God would have us do or where we know what what we want God to do or where we're following the advice of church leaders. The obedience of faith is practice where we know his will from his word and Again, like Jeremiah, there's no reason we can see for doing what is commanded except God has commanded it. Where it doesn't seem to benefit us materially, may make us worse off, as it did Jeremiah. And where what is commanded is not something we would naturally think to do. In fact, it may not sit well with our customary way of thinking or our understanding of the world. What we see in Jeremiah's purchase is the obedience of faith, and that's actually the way believers in Jesus are meant to live every moment of every day. Because that's where we start, isn't it? Leaving all to follow Jesus because we trust him and he calls us to follow him, to love him more than our own lives, confessing him at the cost of disapproval and social exclusion. It's where we start. And it's how we continue, for example, loving our neighbours as ourselves, even when it costs us time and money 
and we get nothing in return. The way we treat others doesn't come from the calculation of mutual benefit, but from the obedience of faith. Jesus commands, and we do. Or another example, forgiving the one who has wronged us, even when it means we feel a loss of our dignity. Or giving to those who ask just because Jesus commands, telling the truth when it only complicates things for us. We do it, even when it costs us and seems to make no sense, just because the Lord Jesus commands. Jeremiah is a model of the obedience of faith. And because his is the obedience of faith, in faith he turns with his puzzlement to the Lord in prayer. Jeremiah's prayer is a prayer of faith and praise. He confesses the truth of God as he's revealed himself to be in his dealings with his people. After it says, I'd given the purchase agreement, I prayed. O Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and the earth by your great power and with your outstretched hand. Nothing is too difficult for you. Jeremiah starts off by confessing the consequence of the Lord's creating all things effortlessly by his word. Nothing is too hard for him. This is the premise, the foundation of Jeremiah's prayer and it's also the foundation, as you heard, of the Lord's response. And it's a truth repeated in Scripture. So it's worth pausing for a moment to think, what does nothing is too hard for the Lord mean? And what doesn't it mean? Well, it means that whatever the Lord commits himself to doing, he will do. Whatever he promises, he will perform. There is nothing and no one, including sin and death, that will stop him doing what he wants to do. But saying nothing is too hard for the Lord is not a theoretical abstraction. It's not an invitation to speculation about logical contradictions like square circles or about whether or not God will do what we want him to do as if we can set tests for him, little demonstrations of his almighty power. No, nothing is too hard for the Lord means he will do whatever he commits himself to doing. And then Jeremiah confesses the Lord to be a God of faithful love and justice, the God who, well, rewards each person according to his ways. And he proclaims the Lord's redemptive acts where God's power, the reality that nothing is too hard for him has been seen in Israel's history and he's working signs and wonders in delivering them from Egypt and bringing them into the land he'd promised. Saving acts that actually highlight the reality of Israel's guilt. They entered and possessed it, but they did not obey you or live according to your instructions. Highlights the reality of their sin, which has brought them to this hard but just present, besieged by the Babylonians. The present the Lord knows and is in fulfilment of his word. What you have spoken has happened. Look, you can see it. Now, Jeremiah's is a rich prayer full of great truth, but the logic of the prayer is that the destruction of the city is the only just and reasonable outcome. 
The outcome that firstly maintains the Lord's justice, secondly maintains his faithfulness to the requirements of the covenant which warned of destruction and exile for disobedience and thirdly fulfills the word that he has spoken through his prophet. What you have spoken has happened. Only the execution of the judgment Jeremiah has spoken of, says Jeremiah, seems consistent with who God is. So Jeremiah ends with an implied question. Yet you, Lord God, have said to me, purchase the field and call in witnesses, even though the city's been handed over to the Chaldeans. See Jeremiah's puzzlement. How can there be more for disobedient Judah, justly condemned to destruction? See, Jeremiah confesses and believes the truth about God. Jeremiah's thoroughly faithful. He believes nothing is too difficult for the Lord, yet he just can't see how God will do what he said. It's not just that the Babylonians are about to enter the city. Destroying them is not too hard for the Lord who destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. And it's not that he thinks bringing people back from exile is too hard. I mean, he brought Israel into the promised land through the wilderness. But how can God cause a people who are persistently disobedient to live in God's land? How can a people whose stubborn rebellion continues to provoke God's wrath to demand their exclusion live in his presence? How can he do this? without the Lord compromising either himself, his character, or his word. Are you sure, Lord? Is this what you really intend? The Lord graciously responds to Jeremiah's prayer, speaks into his puzzlement, and in speaking, gives Jeremiah a hope, gives us a hope, that goes beyond the restoration of Israel to the promised land gives us a hope in the God for whom nothing is too difficult. But the Lord's response has two parts. In the first, verses 26 to 35, he makes it clear that there will be no compromise to his justice. In fact, he intensifies the condemnation of Israel. Look, says the Lord, I'm the Lord, the God of over every creature. Is anything too difficult for me? That's the starting point. He says, can I really keep? both my word of judgment and blessing? Can I be both judge and saviour? The Lord's going to say, yes. But first, judgment. This is what the Lord says. I am about to hand this city over to the Chaldeans. They will come and set this city on fire. There is no change in the prophesied judgment and what will befall a persistently rebellious people. For in verses 30 to 35, we read that this judgment is fully fully justified. Oh, from their youth, the Israelites and Judeans have done nothing but what is evil in my sight. They have done nothing but anger me. This city has caused my wrath and fury from the day it was built. Judah is responsible for the judgment that will overtake them. They have been sinful from the beginning and they've persisted in it. In verse 32, it involves everyone, kings, officials, priests, prophets, men, all the residents. 
In fact, they persisted despite warning. Though I taught them, time and time again they did not listen and receive discipline. Oh, and they've been openly contemptuous. Verse 34, putting their abhorrent things, their idols in the Lord's temple. And in their idolatrous folly, they've embraced a hatred of life, the life which God created, which is his gift, sacrificing their children in the fire to Moloch. They have, by their own actions, completely alienated themselves from the living God. They've turned their backs to me and not their faces. He was calling, but they refused to turn. Their judgment is fully deserved. But don't think this sinfulness that seems to frustrate blessing, God doing the good he wanted to do for them, is unique to Judah. That they're being judged because they are especially bad. Actually, their sin is spoken of in ways that will make it plain that in their sin they represent us all. Oh, they've sin from their youth, but actually that's the characterization of humanity from Genesis 8 when God said the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth upwards. Oh, and in their idolatry, they're not different from the nations, not different from us. They're actually just becoming like the nations, sharing in the sin of us all. And so the judgment that deserves to fall on them is the judgment that deserves to fall on all, on you and I for our rebellion against the living God because we too are thoroughly sinful from our youth upward, all of us. We have turned our backs on our creator. God makes it plain in verses 28 to 35 that he isn't going to restore his people, bring blessing to any by stepping away from compromising his justice or going back on what he said. And that, we have to recognise, is good. We need order and justice. There's a longing for justice in the human heart, isn't there? However you'll vote on the voice, part of what's driving that, isn't it, is the longing for justice, the setting right of wrongs. We need justice. But justice that gives to each one of us according to our works, which is the justice of God, if you've heard, condemns us all. But thankfully, God goes on to speak a surprising therefore. Now, therefore, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to this city about which you said it has been handed over to Babylon's king through sword, famine and plague. Now you'd expect, having just listed all their sin, that that therefore to be followed by something like, therefore I'll make a full end. Oh, therefore in the light of your persistent and abhorrent sin, I've finished with you forever. Oh, they are sinners and therefore judgment and that's it. Well, the Lord acknowledges that they deserve judgment, are under judgment, repeating the prophecy he gave to Jeremiah, but that therefore introduces something so surprising, so unexpected. It introduces the good the just God intends to do for this sinful people. 
I will certainly gather them from all the lands where I've been. I'll return them. I'll make them live in safety. God promises to gather his scattered people. That is to do what he promised to do in Deuteronomy for a repentant people. And after judgment, he says, they will know security and safety in his land, in his presence. And he says, they will be my people and I will be their God, that he will fulfill in them his covenant purpose. The purpose in his calling Abraham, to whom he said, I'll confirm my covenant that's between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And it was to fulfill this purpose that the Lord had rescued Israel from Egypt and entered into covenant with them at Sinai and said, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Now he says he will do this for this sinful people. And he says he is the one who will make that possible by changing their hearts in an eternal, a new covenant. I will give them integrity of heart and action so that they will fear me always for their good and the good of their descendants after them. I will make a permanent covenant with them. I will never turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they'll never again turn away from me. The goal of God's gracious work will be that they fear him always, fear him in their hearts at the centre of their wills. Now this fear is the fear Deuteronomy talked of. It is that trusting awe of God that is inseparable from loving him and seen in doing his commands. God will give to his people the heart that will do and delight in doing his will, the heart that will always be loyal to the Lord and so always enjoy good from the Lord, the good of living in his land, his presence forever. And this heart, this pure heart that knows only one loyalty and one way will be given in the context of an eternal, a permanent covenant, a relationship that will never be broken. Now this covenant is the one Jeremiah had just spoken of in the chapter before, Jeremiah 31, the passage we hear often at the Lord's Supper where God says he will make this covenant with them. He'll put his teaching within them and write it on their hearts. He'll be their God and they'll be his people. Oh, yes, and I'll forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So this covenant is forever permanent because God ensures his people will keep it. He will put his teaching in their hearts at the centre of their wills and it will be permanent again because the Lord guarantees that they will never be condemned. He will forgive their sins and remember them no more. And this, this covenant will fulfil the desire of God for his relationship with his people. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them. What an extraordinary and wonderful thing for the living God to say. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them. The Lord will be the God who blesses 
as well as the God who judges. He will be the God, he says to Jeremiah, who remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to do good to their descendants as he has promised. And he will, as Jeremiah declared when he made provision to preserve the contract of purchase, bring them back to living in the land and their land will again be bought and sold. I'm about to bring on them all the good I'm promising them. Fields will be bought. Fields will be bought. Now these are rich promises, aren't they? Three things to bear in mind as you hear them. Firstly, all this is for a people whom God has made clear are thoroughly sinful, thoroughly deserving of judgment, who have turned their backs to the Lord. So these promises come solely from the Lord's steadfast love, his faithfulness, his grace. They flow from him and his determination to bless. From him, within, not evoked in him by anything in the people, just from him. And secondly, the scope of what is promised, while including bringing the people back to the land, goes well beyond that. Both the content of the promise and who can be included in the promise is greater. You see, God promises to deal with their sin, its consequences and its causes, by giving them a new heart, to bring about a forever relationship where they will always know the Lord delighting in them. See, these are promises that stretch into eternity when in Paul's words, God will show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, of his grace to us in Christ forever for God's people. Oh, and this promise also will include all people For Judah's sin is the sin of all. And Judah's rescue, their reconciliation through forgiveness and dealing with their sinful heart is the rescue of all, making it possible for all to turn to God and come to live in his presence, in his land. The new heart the Lord will give in fulfilment of these promises is the heart all need. And the blessing promised Abraham The blessing we see God is determined to keep included the blessing of all nations. And thirdly, the Lord is wholly committed to this. Did you hear, did you feel the repeated I? I will certainly gather. I will return them. I will make them live in safety. I will be their God. I will give them integrity of heart. I will make a permanent covenant. I will never turn. I will put fear of me. I will take delight in them. This is something God says he personally will do. He will bring about. He's all in here. But when and how? Will he bring this to pass? The Lord brought the exiles back, yes, at the end of the 70 years' captivity. We see that in Israel they were in there buying and selling land. But much more is promised. These are promises that reach into the end. (coughs) When it says, 
God will dwell among his people. Revelation, this is the climax of these promises. Where in the new heaven and earth, he says, they'll be his people and God himself will be with them and with their God. These promises reach into the end with certainty because they are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. At the Last Supper, which we're about to share in, the Lord Jesus taught that his death would bring into being that new permanent covenant for all who believe in him. This is my blood of the covenant, he says, as he takes the cup, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, it's he through his death who brings the time now when God's people have new hearts and it's through his death that God redeems the people for his very own. Have you ever wondered, by the way, why Thomas, that good new, good Jew, could look at the risen Jesus and confess my Lord and my God? But it's actually because he recognised his God in his achieving the promised salvation of God. That's right, he recognised his God in achieving the promised salvation of God. He saw the Lord Jesus was the Son of God, God come amongst us to do exactly what the Lord had committed himself to do in passages like Jeremiah 32. God come amongst us to save by his death and rising. What no mere man could do, God did through sending his Son into the world, showing that nothing was too hard for the Lord. Being just and executing just judgment on the sins of his people on the cross and by that same cross being the God of steadfast love in fulfilling his promises to Abraham that his descendants would be his own people and he, their God, showing mercy to all who, like Abraham, would believe the gospel and know forgiveness of sins. See, Jeremiah's not told how the Lord will do what he has promised. He is just called to believe that nothing is too hard for the Lord. But believers in Jesus know, know that he has done it through sending his son into the world to ransom his people from the penalty of their sin, their covenant breaking through his death and giving them new hearts in giving them his spirit. Believers have experienced every time we cry, Abba, Father, in our hearts, know the Spirit. We have experienced that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so we, you and I, should live believing that nothing is too hard for the Lord and show that by joyfully practicing the obedience of faith. You see, as you hear God make these promises in Jeremiah 2 and as you have seen their fulfilment in our Lord Jesus even at this table, well, see and confess again the wonder of the Lord being the God he says he is and give him praise. The God of the surprising, therefore, who can do good to those who don't deserve it, who doesn't give us what our sin deserves, but himself guarantees blessing to sinners while never compromising on his justice, the justice the world and our hearts need. And as you give praise, 
Reckon in your daily life with nothing being too hard for him. You see, like Jeremiah, we can confess that as an orthodox truth, but still have trouble believing wholeheartedly that the Lord will do exactly what he said, especially when we can't see how he can do it. And when we do that, we actually rob ourselves of the comfort and hope he gives us in his promises. Let me give you some examples. See, God hasn't promised to spare us suffering, but he has promised to work all things for our good, to conform us to the image of his son who suffered and rose to glory. Now, you may not see how any good can come from what you are suffering now, but God has promised and nothing is too hard for him. Believe that and have the comfort of knowing your suffering is serving his good purpose for you. Our God's promise to save all who call on him. So you can press that on anyone, no matter how great and ugly their sin or how hostile they are to the gospel. No one is beyond saving, for nothing is too hard for the Lord. God has promised that where we see a brother or sister sinning a sin not to death, we can pray and God will give them life. They might seem to us so mighty in their addiction or their love of the world that they can't change. But nothing is too hard for the Lord. We should pray with confidence and not despair for them. Oh, yes, and as we know to our great grief, God has not promised to heal all our ills in this life, in this fallen world. But he has promised that day will come for his people when he will make all things, when he will make everything new and wipe every tear from our eyes. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The one seated on the throne says, look, I am making everything new. Now I cannot even begin to understand how our God will do that. To heal every wound every betrayal, every grievous failure, to undo the scarring of our souls and of our world. But he has said it, and nothing is too hard for him. So we should look forward to that day with confidence. Know the comfort in our grief of this sure hope. Know that the hurts that we have suffered in this world are not final and defining for us because nothing is too hard for the Lord. And knowing our God, knowing that nothing's too hard for him, let's live out the obedience of faith that honours him just as Jeremiah's obedient faith honoured him. Doing what our Lord teaches us to do simply because he tells us to. Whatever it is, staying in that loveless marriage for the Lord commands faithfulness, forgiving that rebellious, hurtful child 
for he commands us to forgive. Our gathering with his people, even when you feel you're getting nothing out of it, confessing him before others, even though it embarrasses you, being generous. But these are just examples. You know where you are challenged by what the Lord commands, where it seems to make no sense and it's costing you. That, brothers and sisters, is where you must practice the obedience of faith. For our God, Father, Son and Spirit is trustworthy and good and his determination, you've heard it, is to bless his people. That's us, believers in Jesus, to delight in us and to do what is good for us, to show us in the coming ages the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He has promised and nothing, is too hard for him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your mercy uh, that we would believe what we hear, that nothing is too hard for you. We should because we say you can raise the dead. You can give new life to those who are dead in sin. You keep your promises and nothing stops you from being the God you will be. Help us, we pray, to trust you and to show that in obedient lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.